Let's pray. Father, we now come to the reason that we have gathered here this morning, not only to sing your praises, but to see the glory of Christ in your word. And so speak, Father. O Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and have your way with us, change us. Make us like Jesus. Make us, Father, to see how glorious he is and how dependent upon him we are and how blessed we are to have such a faithful high priest, the shepherd of our souls. And may we be changed a little more into his likeness, for we pray it by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 this morning and read with me beginning in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. The author of Hebrews writes, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. I read this week about the faithful pastors and churches in India who are suffering under the deadly persecution there where their churches are being burned, their Bibles are being burned, and their pastors are being executed. These former Hindu men and women are being called upon by their neighbors and by the civil authorities to turn their backs on the Lord Jesus Christ and return to the religion of their fathers. They're being offered peace for apostasy. And somehow, though it costs them everything in this life, thousands upon thousands are standing firm, are holding fast, are drawing near to Christ 
nearer than when they first believed. It should not surprise us, however, to learn that some who have professed Christ in those hostile lands have indeed turned their backs under the pressure, and others are right now being tempted this very morning, being tempted to turn their backs on Christ because it's hard. It's hard to follow Christ when your family is against you. It's hard to follow Christ when the Muslim leaders of your village are threatening to kidnap your children and kill your pastor and burn your church and dispose of your Bibles and end your jobs. Now, if someone from Voice of the Martyrs, let's say, were to call you on the telephone today, and to ask you to write a letter to these churches to encourage them to remain true to their calling, what would you write? What would you say to them? How would you encourage them? What scripture would you use? Beloved, when we read the book of Hebrews, it is as if we have intercepted just such a letter. Only this letter is not written to former Hindus, but to Jews who are being persecuted for turning their backs on the Old Testament, the Old Testament sanctimonious religious sacrificial priestly system of ceremonies and offerings. And the author is writing to persuade them to stand firm, to hold fast, to draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Israel's promised Messiah. He's writing to tell them the decision you made on the day you first placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ was the right decision. And even if it costs you your life, don't go back. Don't go back. It makes sense then that the author would appeal to Scripture to demonstrate that Jesus is the promised Christ. These, after all, were Jewish believers. They had grown up hearing, read, and preached the Old Testament. And so it was appropriate for the author to appeal to Old Testament scriptures to demonstrate that Jesus was the promised Christ, the Messiah, who would come to fulfill all that the Old Covenantal system symbolized. In doing so, he establishes three very important fundamental truths. This by way of refresher for us to lead us up to chapter 8. First, he established from the Old Testament, and we won't look at all of these scriptures, but they come out of chapter 7. First, he established that the Levitical priesthood could never, never, never purify sinful men. The Old Testament Levitical system could never purify sinful men. It could only offer a a, a temporary kafar, a covering. It could only for the moment or for a period of time cover the sins of the sinner. But he could never take away sins. Second, he demonstrated from the Old Testament that God never intended the Levitical priesthood to be permanent. Yes, it lasted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But God never intended from the beginning that it would be a permanent system. In fact, he says in chapter 7, he says now, verse 11, 
if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, implication, and it's not. In other words, if through the Levitical system, God could achieve his goal of bringing many sons to glory, there would not be a need for another priesthood. Remember us talking about that several weeks ago. And yet the Lord very clearly stated from Psalm 110, and you see that up in verse 6 of chapter 5, that the Lord has established that there will be another priesthood. And it will be a priesthood based not on the priesthood of Aaron, but rather after the order of Melchizedek, a priest who appeared to Abraham, a priest who was also king. And so by quoting from Psalm 110, the author showed that God had clearly prophesied through David that someday a new priesthood would be established, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. And like Melchizedek, this new priest, this Messiah, would be both high priest and high king. The third truth the author has demonstrated out of the Old Testament thus far is that God has always intended, listen, he has always intended to purify sinners through the ministry of an eternal priest. Not a mortal priest. Not a man who would die after offering the blood of bulls and goats, but an eternal priest who would offer an everlasting, eternal, infinite sacrifice. Earthly priests had their place in God's system, but they could never bring sinners to God's ultimate goal. They could never secure salvation. Only the eternal priest could do that. And it had to be the perfect priest offering the perfect sacrifice and this he argues the lord jesus did once for all and so it all comes down to this that god listen god designed an imperfect priesthood an imperfect priestly system in order to magnify the glory of the perfect and eternal priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. In reality, everything about the old covenantal system served as only a shadow of the glory of the one who would come. Now, if you've ever seen artists drawings and paintings of what that temple complex looked like. You remember when Jesus and the disciples were coming out of Jerusalem and the disciples said, Lord, look at all of these glorious buildings. There's the temple with the great columns out in front. Those are the, the golden doors that open up and in the east when the sun shines on it in the morning, it glows with fire. I mean, look at the colonnades and all of the pillars. Look at all the priests in their royal robes or their priestly white robes and their sashes and their, their blue headdresses. And, and look at all the people coming in with their sacrifices and their offerings. They're, they're putting money in the little horns that drop into the boxes where the widow's might incident happened. And then there's the corn of the priests. And then there's the 
temple proper with its great staircase leading up to the great doors, entering through, leads you to the holy place, and then beyond that, through the veil, to the holy of holies. This is an awesome work of architecture. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. All of this will be ripped down in one day, and there will not be one stone left upon another. But three days later, I will recreate it. What's he saying? He's saying, guys, this isn't the true temple. This is a copy. This is a shadow. God does not place any intrinsic value in these buildings. It's stone. It's earth. It's gold. It's things that don't matter for eternity. It is only a big shadow, and it points to a great reality, the true temple. And the priests only serve as a copy, as something to point us to the true priest. And I am he. And so the old covenant system with all of its pageantry and all of its regulations and all of its costumes and all of its hats and all of its shovels and fire and gold and all of the stuff, it looks so real. It looks so beautiful. But it wasn't the real thing. In chapter 8 then, After the author explains all of this is pointing to Christ, all of this is pointing to a great high priest who the prophets in the Old Testament said were coming. He's coming. He's coming. And all that was foreshadowed by all of those festivals and new moons and Sabbath days and rituals and sacrifices, all of it is pointing to this one. He's coming. The great high priest of your souls is coming. And now chapter 8, the author says, now the main point in what has been said thus far is this. We have such a high priest. The wait is over. When you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... You were brought before the great high priest. Your salvation was secured through his high priestly ministry on your behalf. He is here, and you have trusted him. Do not turn your back on him. Don't go back to the shadow. It could never save you. Cling with all your might, though it cost you your life, to the Lord Jesus The main point is that we have such a high priest, and his priesthood is infinitely more glorious than the priesthood you are tempted to go back to. Why is it more glorious? Several reasons. Number one, because Christ's priesthood, you remember, was established by an oath. We won't read these texts, but chapter 7, verse 21, the former priests were priests by birth, 
The only thing you had to do to become a priest was to be born from the tribe of Levi through Aaron. And if you were a male and you didn't have any defects, you were a priest, but not Jesus. Jesus was appointed priest by God himself. And when God did it, he swore an oath. And he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Secondly, his priesthood is infinitely more glorious because Christ's priesthood is eternal. You remember in chapter 7, verses 23 through 24, the old covenant priests were temporary because they were subject to death. And how could a temporary priest grant eternal salvation? Can't happen. It can't happen. A temporal priest cannot provide eternal salvation. But Christ, verse 25, chapter 7, is able to save forever those who draw near to God. You see that? Verse 25. The Lord Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Thirdly, his priesthood is infinitely more glorious because he offered the perfect sacrifice. Verse 27. Look at that. Chapter 7, verse 27. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of his people? Because this he did, how many times? Once for all. For all who would put their trust in him, for all who would believe, the sacrifice was paid. Number four, not only that, but according to chapter 8, verse 1, our text for this morning, he has done something no Old Testament priest could ever do. Now the main point in what has been said, verse 1 says, is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his, what? His seat. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because in the Old Testament tabernacle, in the old temple, there were many pieces of furniture. In fact, if you read Leviticus, you, I guarantee, will be tempted to get really bogged down in the description of all the different rings and curtains and coverings and pillars and colonnades and you know, how to build this altar and that altar and what it should look like and what it should be made of and how big it should be, this high by this wide. There was a lot of furniture. There was the table of showbread. There was the lampstands. There was the altar of incense. There was the altar of burnt offerings. There were the shovels. There were the pans. There were the grates. There was the Ark of the Covenant. There was all of the stuff. But there was one thing that God did not include in the architecture. You know what it was? A seat. There was no place for the priests to sit down. Why? Because their work never ended. Why? Because God never intended for that priesthood to bring about salvation. It was never intended for that priesthood to take away sin. If it could take away sin, the priest could just get it done and sit down. But he never got it done. He'd cover it, and cover it, cover it, cover it. When are you going to send the high priest, Lord? When are you going to send Messiah? 
Isn't it about time? It's been 300 years. It's been 400 years. It's been 500 years. It's been 600 years. It's been 700 years. Lord, is the Messiah going to come? They cover, 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 cover. Still waiting. Still waiting. And as long as they were waiting, they were working. As long as they had a temple to serve in, they were working. There was never a place to sit down. There was only one seat in the tabernacle. And that seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was called the what? Mercy seat. And who sat there? God. Only God could sit. God did not provide any place for the priest to sit down because their work was never done. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said, just before he died, to tell us thy, it is finished. Paid in full. Sacrifices made. Sins taken away. All is forgiven. It is done. Salvation has been made eternally secure for all who believe. And then he went to the Father and did what? The text tells us. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He sat down done and notice where he sat down he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens Jesus Christ's priestly ministry is infinitely more glorious and effectual than the Old Testament priests because he is no ordinary priest he is God He could sit because the only person who could sit in the temple was God, and that is Christ. He is the God priest. And notice the place of his seat, verse 2. The place of this seat is in the sanctuary, and mark this, the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not Man, now what does that mean? What's he saying? He's saying this, beloved. Do you remember when Moses took the children of Israel and rescued them out of Egypt? They crossed the Red Sea, all the miracles that happened to get them to Sinai. When they got to Sinai, Moses went up to the top of the mountain to meet with God. And we had that whole thing with the golden calf, and Moses came down and he broke the first tablets of the law. People, many of them died that day. The idol was destroyed. Moses went back up the mountain. The people repented, said, Lord, everything that God says we will do, just tell us what he wants of us. And so Moses went back up the mountain and met with God for 40 days. God gave him the Ten Commandments, but that is not all that God gave. He also gave them their whole legal code, their whole legal system about how they, as a nation, he was forming them into a nation, and as a nation, they would need laws. And so he gave them laws. But he didn't just give them laws. He gave them himself. 
And in giving them himself, he wanted them to have a visual manifestation of his presence. And you remember the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud called the Shekinah glory. Where was the Shekinah going to reside? Or we might ask, where was God going to sit in the camp? And so God told Moses, there has to be a special place right in the center of the camp. I want you to build me a tent. It's a tent unlike anything anyone's ever seen before. That's what the word tabernacle means, tent. And the tent was set up exactly like what the temple would be set up like because the temple was built on the pattern of the tabernacle. It had two rooms. It had the holy place, as I've described it. It had the most holy place or the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. But here's the thing. Where did Moses get that idea? I mean, yes, God told him to build him a tent. But all the details of it, where did that come from? The tabernacle that Moses carried around in the wilderness was built as a kind of rough model of the true tabernacle that resides in heaven. Think about it, beloved. If today you and I could take a tour of Moses' temple, Moses' tabernacle, or Solomon's temple, what would you see? If we could set up a model out here in the field, west of our building, and set it up to look exactly like what they saw as they wandered the wilderness, what would it look like? Well, first we would step into the room called the holy place where Moses had set up lamps. According to God's design, to give light and to symbolize the light of the glory of God in this otherwise dark room. There was also a table of bread, and on it was the manna of God, or bread that symbolized the manna of God, which, by the way, you remember Jesus, who said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. You see the symbolism? There was also an altar of incense where the priests would pray, and then there was a veil or a curtain that blocked the way between the two rooms into the Holy of Holies. And as you know, the high priest could only enter that room once a year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood on the most holy piece of furniture in the building, the golden Ark of the Covenant. And the top of this golden box was the seat that I have described to you. It is called the mercy seat, but it was not for the priest to sit upon. It symbolized the very throne of God. And over this seat, there were two angels standing erect with their wings touching one another. It must have been a magnificent sight. We speculate about the glory of it. Movies have been made trying to depict what it must have looked like. You've probably seen Indiana Jones, their rendition of what that ark looked like. 
I submit to you it was far more glorious than that. It must have been a magnificent sight. But here's the author's point. None of it was true. Look at the verse. Verse 2. This high priest is a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So whatever tabernacle he's talking about is not the one that Moses pitched. There is a high priest today. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is serving in a tabernacle as our high priest. The word true here is not opposed to false. It's not that the old tabernacle was false, but true is opposed to unreal or shadowy or symbolic. It was only a symbol that pointed to the real thing in heaven. And so I ask you, have you ever considered the fact that there is in heaven today the Lord Jesus Christ serving as high priest in the true heavenly tabernacle after which Moses patterned the symbolic earthly tabernacle? When God gave him that pattern, he said, verse 5, speaking of the earthly priest, he said, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle, for he said, see, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. When Moses was on the mountain, God, as it were, peeled back the heavens and said, Moses, look. This is the reality. Make a copy. Run it through your copy machine, and you will come out with the architectural design for the house that I will live in temporarily. This is where the Lord Jesus is today. The author of Hebrews would suggest that we think about these things. So think about this. At the end of your life, at the end of your life, when you cross that deep river of death and open your eyes in eternity for the first time, where will you be? And who will you see? I submit that the author of Hebrews is suggesting that when you open your eyes in that place, you will not find yourself in the temple of Jerusalem. And the first person you see will not be Moses. When you open your eyes in eternity, you will be in the true tabernacle of God. And the first person you see will be your great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us what? When we die... To be absent from the body is to be present where? With the Lord. And where is the Lord? The Lord is serving as our great high priest in the true tabernacle of God. Have you ever wondered what heaven is like? Have you ever thought about what heaven is like today? Have you ever tried to picture in your mind 
I don't mean the heaven of the future after Satan is cast into the bottomless pit forever and ever. I'm not talking about the heaven in terms of the new heaven and the new earth or the new Jerusalem. I'm not talking about the millennial kingdom and all of that stuff that's to come and it will come. What I'm talking about is right now, if you were to die today, And you, as a disembodied spirit, temporarily, go to heaven to be with the Lord, as Paul says we will. What does that heaven look like? What will you enter upon? What is heaven like right now? This past week, as my family watched helplessly while my mother approached the precipice of eternity, not once, but twice, I couldn't help but think about what it would be like to arrive in heaven this week. What would it be like? What would we see? Where would we be? What would we hear? How would we feel? You know, most people fear death. Death is terrifying to most of us. In fact, the author of Hebrews himself, turn back to chapter 2. The author of Hebrews himself explains that the fear of death is a primary cause for people remaining enslaved to the devil. In chapter 2, verse 15, he writes that Christ partook of flesh and blood so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Fear of death. Let's face it. People are afraid to die. And that stands to reason, since all of us will one day face death unless the Lord returns first. As Randy Alcorn points out, human beings have a terminal disease. It's called mortality. The current death rate is 100%. And unless Christ returns soon, we're all going to die. We don't like to think about death, yet worldwide, he writes, three people die every second. 180 people die every minute. Nearly 11,000 people die every hour. And if the Bible is right about what happens after death, it means that more than 250,000 people every day either enter hell or eternal glory. And so I ask you, if in the mystery of God's sovereign grace, the Lord calls your name today, And you are a child of God. What will you discover when you awaken on the other side? Today's text answers. If you have held fast to Christ in this life, you will discover realities beyond our present ability to even imagine in heaven. Let me try to give you a glimpse. When you wake up there, the first thing that I think the author would have our attention be riveted upon is a seat. A seat. As soon as your eyes are able to focus on your surroundings, you will see a glorious throne. The likes of which you've never even imagined. It stands tall and it's wide. 
Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 26 describes it as something that looks like it has been cut from a single sapphire. You know what that tells me? I asked a group I was meeting with last night for dinner. What color is the throne of God? What color is a sapphire? It's this gorgeous, blue, shining throne. And around the throne, there is the most beautiful rainbow you have ever seen. But unlike a normal rainbow, this one is mostly green. It's like an emerald, John says. And funny thing, though, it's a rainbow, except there isn't any rain. It's just the glory of God. And as you look, you're somewhat startled to find that there are bolts of lightning shooting out of the rear of this throne. As if there is some kind of unimaginable power that must be periodically bursting forth. And with each lightning bolt, there is a deafening crack of thunder. Revelation 4 verse 5 says, this is the throne. This is the seat that the Ark of the Covenant only symbolized. It is the throne of the majesty in the heavens. It is the throne of God himself. The throne of the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. But more than that, it is the seat of our great high priest. The one who sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. It is the seat that is only hinted at by the golden box in the Holy of Holies. Because the golden box that was in the Holy of Holies and that archaeologists are still looking for today was only a symbol. It was only a symbol. And that's why when the children of Israel took that ark and they went up against the Philistines thinking that the ark would protect them, it was only a symbol. When God wasn't there, they were helpless. And the Philistines conquered them, though they had the very symbol of the throne of God in their hands. And this is the throne of the majesty in the heavens. But this heavenly throne is not simply levitating in outer space somewhere. No, as you look around, you will begin to see that you are in a very special place. A place that is far bigger, far more vast than anything you could build. It certainly was unimaginably larger, is unimaginably larger than the tabernacle or even the great temple or even the plans for the next great temple. It is called in verse 2 the sanctuary. The sanctuary and the true tabernacle of God. And under the throne and all around it, there is what John calls in Revelation 4, 6, a sea. I think what he's saying is it's an expansive floor that's clean like glass, he says, and pure as crystal. And upon that floor of crystal stands 24 smaller thrones upon which sit the 24 elders clothed in white with golden crowns upon their head, Revelation 4 says. 
And beyond that and around this great sanctuary, there stand seven great lamps of fire burning. It's burning before the throne, very similar to the lamps in the original tabernacle of Israel. And near the throne are the four living creatures whose four faces and eyes and wings are practically beyond description. If you read about them in Ezekiel, you think, oh my goodness, what is that? And when you hear John talk about it, it really doesn't help us that much more. These four creatures that if we were to try to put it together in our minds, it would seem grotesque. But in the minds of the prophets, in the eyes of the prophets, they were gorgeous. They were beautiful beyond description. They stand by the throne of God. Near the throne are these four living creatures. And as you look beyond them, you begin to realize that this crystal floor extends out as far as the eye can see in every direction. And here, Micaiah the prophet back in 1 Kings, the Old Testament said, All of the host of heaven stand beside and around the throne of God. You've got the throne. You've got the living creatures. You've got the 24 elders in their throne. The rainbow, the lightning. You've got the high priest of your soul sitting on the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And all of it on a sea of glass. And in the middle of it all, just in front of the sapphire throne, there is an altar. But do not be deceived, beloved. This is not an altar of burnt offerings. Why? Because the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, offered one sacrifice for all time. There is now no more need for a sacrifice for sin. And if you follow a religion that says, here is the way to God, here is the way to reconcile you as a sinner to God, and it doesn't go through the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a cult. And it doesn't matter how Christian it may appear. This floor goes out as far as the eye can see because it's required to be that big in order to accommodate all of the host of heaven whenever they come around the throne. This is one big sanctuary. This is one huge tabernacle. And in the midst of it all, you got the, the 24th smaller thrones and the large, great sapphire throne with the rainbow and the lightning and then smack right in the middle of the floor, there's this altar. But it's not an altar for burnt offerings. It is the altar of incense. What's the importance of that? What did the incense represent? When they poured out the incense on the hot coals and it made smoke that went up, what would the priest do while that was happening? He'd pray. He'd pray. He'd stand before the altar and pray. Why? Because his job is to be the mediator. His job was to stand, as it were, between the people, sinful people, and holy God and stand as the mediator. You see, people, even believers today, cannot access God on their own. 
They have no merit. They have no righteousness of their own. There must be a mediator. If you were to take a square pipe and run it through your house and you get to the end and you're going to connect it to the city pipes, who knows why you would have a square pipe? I don't know. I'm making this up. And you were to try to connect it to the city pipe and you would find that it's a round pipe and they're not going to fit. What do you need? You need a mediator. Now, if you go down to the store and ask for a mediator, they're not going to want to know know what you're talking about. You need a piece that's going to fit on both ends, to the square and to the round. The priest's job is to be that mediator who stands as a real human being representing sinful man and connecting them to a holy God. And so there's this altar of incense. And you know in the tabernacle where it was placed? Right at the veil. And you know I discovered something interesting about this altar of incense uh, a number of years ago. I read one passage, and it talked about it being in the holy place where the table and the lamps are. And I read another passage that said it was in the holy of holies. And I kept flipping back and forth, checking with other passages. And you know what? You know what I discovered? This thing was on wheels. And that makes sense because they traveled all around with it. On the Day of Atonement, you know what they would do with that altar of incense? They'd wheel it in. Into the holy of holies. And the priest would pray. He would fling the blood on the seat of mercy. And he would pray, God, be gracious. Forgive your people. God, be gracious. Be merciful. Forgive us for our sins. God, accept this blood as a covering for our sin until you send the Messiah. Oh, Father, send the Messiah. What's the significance of this altar? The significance of this altar of incense is this is where the Lord Jesus ministers for you. There are no more sacrifices being made to cleanse us from sin. But I want you to look Chapter 7, where he says, I'm trying to scan and find it here. The Lord always lives to make intercession for us. There it is, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save also. He's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. Where is he doing that? He's doing it in the true tabernacle. And if you read Revelation 4, you find an angel who comes with this what, what appears to be a bag of incense to pour out on the altar. And it's as if John's saying, what's that for? 
And the angel says, oh, these are the prayers of the people coming to pour them out on the altar of incense. Why? I don't think he was going to pour them out on the altar of incense. I think he's come to give them to the high priest of the altar of incense, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's his ministry. Listen, did Jesus sit down after he made his sacrifice? Yes. He sat down at the right hand of God. Is he sitting today? The answer is Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that his salvation, our salvation, is complete. It's finished. It's final. Nothing can be added to it. To add to it would be to corrupt it. In that sense, our salvation is secure. He has sat down in the sense that our salvation is finished. But he stands. He continues to minister. Look with me. Verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer. This is Hebrews 8. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also has something to offer. Now if he were on earth he would not be a high priest at all. Since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God. And we've already read the warning. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Verse 6. By as much as he is also. Listen. A mediator of a better covenant. Which has been enacted on better promises. I read that just to say this. He is still working. Not to secure our salvation. It's done. But he stands at the altar in the true sanctuary, always living to make intercession for us because we cannot come to God on our own. We need a high priest. We need a high priest. We need a high priest today who will stand in the eternal, infinite tabernacle of God in the heavens. And so chapter 8, verse 1 says, the main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. And he is there today, working and serving us. What a magnificent sight we would behold when we wake up in glory. But do not think that it will appear to us as a museum piece or a still image. To the contrary, this place is full of activity and noise and commotion. There are the peals of thunder cracking from the throne, the wings of the cherubim swooshing back and forth incessantly above the throne. And while the living creatures are giving glory and honor and thanks to God, the 24 elders fall down before the throne of worship, casting their crowns from their heads. Can you imagine? Can you even begin to imagine? And yet we will see it. But you know, as I ponder these things, it occurs to me that when I wake up in heaven, I might not even notice all the noise. I might not even notice all the activity. Because you see, there is something infinitely more glorious than all of these things put together. I think when I wake up in heaven, when you wake up in heaven, for the very first time, our eyes and all of our senses will be immediately riveted upon one man who is receiving all of the praise. 
In one sense, he looks like an ordinary man because he is. But his robes and sash betray the reality that he is the high priest of the heavenly sanctuary. And though his proper seat is at the right hand of majesty on high, yet he stands. Yet he stands. And by the way, there is no mention of a veil in this tabernacle. You know why? Because when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil in the temple? It was torn in two. From top to bottom. And yes, the Pharisees and the priests and the scribes somehow sewed that thing back together. But as far as God was concerned, there was, it was done. There was no more need for it. And when you enter into that sanctuary on the day you pass to that place, you will stand, as it were, in the back of the Holy of the holy place, seeing all of this stuff, and at the end of it all, you will see that throne. You will see what no child of Israel could even see the copy of. You will see the throne of majesty in the heavens. The main point of what the author of Hebrews has written thus far is we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So don't turn your back on him. Don't become complacent about him. Don't let your love for him grow dim. Don't let your passion to worship him subside. Hold fast. Stand firm. Draw near. Why do we think the curtain was torn down? Why do we have no mention of it here? What are the implications of that? The implications are this. We are called upon to do something. We are called upon to respond in such a way that is appropriate to the veil being torn apart so that we have access to God. Why do I mention that? I mention that because I meet so many professing believers whose whole Christianity comes down to one prayer. They pray the sinner's prayer. And all of their Christianity is in that prayer. And nothing, almost nothing has happened since then. Why do we have the temple? Why does God reveal to us that there is this great, true tabernacle of God? Is it there just to satisfy our curiosity? Or is God saying, come, 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 again and again and again. Come, have your sins forgiven. Have the, the dirt on your feet washed off. Have your soul purified afresh and anew. Come and fellowship with Him. Come and worship Him. Come and be satisfied with all that He is in Christ. Do not be satisfied with some religious prayer that you have prayed. 
Do not look to the past and think that your Christianity is all about what you did before. This relationship with a high priest is to be dynamic and full and satisfying to the depths of our souls. When we offer our prayers, we offer it with vigor and with faith, knowing that the Lord himself stands at this offer making intercession for us. And there we leave him to stand with nothing to do. How foolish. How foolish. The really beautiful thing here is that when we do draw near to this throne, we find that his majestic and terrifying throne will be for you the throne of grace where you can come with boldness, the author says, to find mercy and help in your time of need. That's what this is all about. Christ's saving work for you is complete, but Christ never rests from laboring before the throne of God as our faithful high priest. And because he is that, he is also the mediator of a better covenant. And that's what we'll talk about next week. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving because you designed all of this. And only you could have. Father, I pray that you would use it, these truths in our lives, to purify us, to keep our relationship with you fresh and alive. Lord, may it be a rebuke to our lazy, spiritually lazy souls. And may it be a sweet invitation to come and receive all that you have provided for us in Christ, our great high priest. For we pray it by the authority of Jesus' name.